Welcome to This Is His Story podcast. Ministries and God's stories you need to know. Okay, now what does that term mean? Well, obviously, the first things we think about is, you know, doing something with integrity. Like I tell people, do what you say, say what you do. As long as you're honest with those things, if you ask for $100 to do something, you're going to do something with that $100, exactly what you said. That's being ethical in your true sense of urgency and true needs, and then using the funds exactly the way you say you're going to. Don't make up a false crisis. Don't make up a false sense of urgency. Don't make up false numbers, right? Those are all the things we think of when we think of ethical digital fundraising. It's just being real and honest. But I want to talk about another level of ethical digital fundraising, maybe something that you haven't fully thought of. First of all, let's talk a little bit about big data. One thing that I feel like a lot of executive directors and certainly pastors don't know is that some of the vendors that they work with or the technology that is available to them may be beyond their comprehension or their need to know. But big data is a big thing. We sometimes think of Facebook, Instagram, and some of the apps we keep in our pocket and their ability to sort of know what we're doing and know what we're up to. And it's very interesting what what they collect on us and what how they use what they collect on us. Even things we let in our home like Google and Alexa and you know what what they're listening into, what they're listening for and what people do with that data. But I'm here to tell you that if if I'm scared of anything, I'm scared of cell phone companies. Cell phone companies know a lot more information about us than we realize. And I'm not here to try to scare you. I'm here to make you think. Facebook, if they are tracking me at all, they're sometimes they track where I tell them I am, meaning I'm checking into this football game or I'm checking into this event. The cell phone company literally knows your path. And if I go to the grocery store, they know which way I walked. They know which aisle I went down and what order. They know where I stopped. They know a lot. You want, well, nobody would want this, but you know who could cause the most amount of divorces? Literally, in 48 hours, all heck would break loose if the cell phone companies released their data uh, of where they track on us. They literally would know, huh, this cell phone and this phone meet every Thursday between 1 and 2 o'clock at this hotel. They know. They know this person sleeps here, but during the day, they go over to this person's house. They have all that information. And it's there. It's not like it doesn't come and go. It's captured. I mean, I can only imagine what their privacy policies are, but that data is there. You can literally know who's hanging where, who hangs out with who, where they stay, what room they probably stay in, I guess, in a... Um, High rise, they wouldn't know which floor you were on necessarily. But you get my point is there's a lot of data out here. And I actually know some people in the industry that are really crunching these big data numbers. One of them, just for an example of what he was doing, he was working with cell phones, not social media companies, the cell phone companies, because he was trying to find potential customers, certain level customers that were sports fans. So he could see not only 
who was attending every Alabama game, but where they sat. Are they season ticket holders? Well, he doesn't have to go to Alabama to find that information. I'm not sure they would tell him. But the cell phone data people know. They know where you sit. They know, did you stop by the pro shop or not? And so he was looking at what they call like geotagging to find out who spends time where and does anybody go to multiple arenas or multiple stadiums and do they travel a lot and what kind of sports fan are they and where do they sit? All the, that's, all that's available and it's out there. And who has access and how much, I, you know, I don't know all the answers to that, but I just want you to know that if, that data is available and as time moves on, I promise you that access to that data is going to be more and more available and you as executive directors or even pastors will have access to data which you can then choose how to use that right you can either want it and ask for something in particular or you can gather data and then think what can i do with this data but those those days are coming and if you're not into that yet you know putting your head in the sand and acting like it doesn't happen it's available to you and one of them right now are wealth reports and um, for those of you pastors listening you're probably, unless you've had a big capital campaign in your church, you probably aren't even thinking about wealth reports. But if you've hired an organization to help you, um, like I used to work for an organization out of, out of uh, Atlanta, and that's what they help. They help churches raise lots of commas in there to build a building or some, you know, something major. They'll offer you a wealth report. And then churches have to decide, do I even want to do this? Nonprofits it's a lot easier in the normal business practice to use wealth reporting. So <clears throat> what I say this, I say this to people all the time. Everybody does wealth reports. It's just what level are you going to do? Because here's the reality. When someone walks up to you, you can tell by the way they dress. Do they have money? What kind of car do they drive? Do they talk about skiing every year? What about that watch on their arm? That's not a $20 watch. So we're always doing wealth reporting one way or the other. It's just, are we going to pay for it? And what kind of information do we feel like is too far? But wealth reporting works on zip codes. It works on multiple houses. Are you financing boats? What kind of cars? I'm not sure what kind of tax records they have, but you know, depending on what boards, are they on multiple board of directors? There's a lot of bullet points. I'm not here to get into all that. But just for you to know that there, that data is out there. It can be purchased on your database and you can do information with that. I tell people all the time that people that are capable of putting commas in their checks for your organization, they don't like to be bothered with $25 gifts. Or if you only ask them for $25, that's all they're going to give you. There are people who are literally capable of writing you a $100,000 check and you've only asked them for $25. And so guess what they've given you? 25 and you think, wow, I wonder why I can't get any big givers. Well, because you're not asking the big big givers to give you big gifts because you, maybe you don't know who they are. They only look like email addresses in your in your database. At your church, you're like, well, our big givers, you know, you're only looking at people who are active and you're not looking at the people who may have potential to give, but they're just not giving your church. They may be giving literally hundreds of thousands of dollars to other organizations, but not your church. And one of my webinars I talk about, I tell organizations to take a risk without being risky. So, you know, I run into two mindsets a lot with my organizations I work with. There are people who use quote unquote best practices for fundraising. And then there's organizations who just think, well, we're so unique. 
you know, we're, we just do kingdom work and the Lord will provide. And I guess they're waiting for him to blow a lottery check against the window because sometimes the Lord doesn't provide by just blowing an anonymous $100,000 against your window, right? I mean, you know, we live in the world and we're allowed to ask. And so, so certain organizations just don't feel comfortable with that. And they don't. And they're, you know, not necessarily um, funding the, the their mission well either. But, you know, our ministries can look at the worldly playbook and best practices. But the reality is we do have a little curveball with how we operate. I mean, it should be a blend between best practices and the Holy Spirit laying it on someone's heart. But also, they got to know where their money's going and what it's going to be doing, right? I say this in, in, in my webinar that, you know, my favorite verse for fundraising is Proverbs 21, 31. A horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory comes from the Lord. There's a balance between both views. The, the, the battle is the Lord, and there are instances in the Old Testament where he literally won a battle without the Israelites doing anything. And there's other times that Israelites, they prepared the horse for battle. They actually went into battle. The Lord... The Lord controlled it, but they did fight, right? I mean, we have something that trumps every best practice. Uh, the Holy Spirit and a guy that moves people to do his work. What God wants, he funds. But we must prepare the horse for battle. We must do the things we should do. We must tell our stories well so that people want to give to it. We operate within this tension and balance, and then we'll find success there. This is why I do what I do. I could probably make a good living um, working with nonprofits. I know enough best practices that I could work with general nonprofits and probably double or triple my income. But I stay in the lane of faith-based Christian organization digital giving. It's my bullseye. It's a way smaller niche, but it's the niche I like being in because I don't really believe that there's best practices for everything. I want us to, to prepare my clients, I want them to prepare their horse for battle. Their horse may not be shaped like other horses. It may not be as fast. It's a unique horse. I want to do the best with each horse, prepare each horse for battle, not just say, here's what a perfect horse looks like. Everybody get to there, use these practices, and everything's going to be, you know, hunky-dory, okay. I don't believe in that. But there's one best practice I insist on. It's integrity. No gimmicks. No creating fake needs, no playing on emotions of givers, ethical storytelling and fundraising. One of my largest clients has made a commitment to be an ethical storyteller. So much so they don't even touch up or edit photos. They're real and raw with a commitment not to play on a donor's emotion. Just think about those SPCA dog, you know, shivering in, in the snow commercials, right? I mean, that is playing on a donor's emotion for sure. But yet they have a truly life-transforming story to tell. Um, they help people with no hope, and they help them come out of horrible situations. So I had to work with them and invent ways to present our transformational stories on our website, email, print, social media, to be authentic, but not make people give out of guilt. And sure enough, we've had a 20% growth year after year after year for about three plus years now. And now this ministry is able to further their reach, save more lives, and get you know more much more needed employees to help them grow. You know all ministries are unique, and and they all we all need the blocking and tackling, and have the the basic standards of best practices 
that are essential for our kingdom-minded organization. To use tried and true tactics, but the strategy should honor the identity, culture, and foundation of each organization. Fundraising using authentic and um, ethical tactics is essential, and we can sleep at night knowing, right, that people are giving for the right reasons. So as you consider the options you have to know how to tackle your house file, how to grow your house file, I mean, just know that there are a lot of opportunities out there to gain data and to learn more about your organization. You're going to have to make a decision what you feel comfortable with. I think a lot of people have their lines and their lines need to be challenged a little bit because it sounds easy to say, oh, no, no, we're not going to do that. We would never do that. But once again, if you start really looking, you realize you're already doing it anyway. I mean, you already are talking to people different and you should be, you should be, you should not treat a 25 year old giver who $25 is about the most they're going to give and somebody could write you a $100,000 check. It, those aren't the same conversations. They're not offline. Why would they be online? Why ask somebody that's capable of giving more only for $25? It just doesn't make sense. And if you don't know enough about your house file, how are you going to talk to people different? Just think think through the you know where your ethics are. Just if you ever work with me, just know that I am I'm super big on being honest. I, I've, I've only had a couple people that I refuse to work with. It's few, but I do have my line. So just, I don't like the tactics. I, I want to sleep at night. I, mean, I am in the fundraising game. I, do, I want to do it for the right reasons. I want to sleep well. And I want, don't, I want to know that every dollar that I help somebody ask for is going to go to what we said. Man, if we do that, we all sleep well at night, right? It's just, that's the only way to live. So, okay, blessings. Hope this made you think a little bit. And um, yeah, talk to you next time. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow on TikTok or Instagram for daily stories Christians need to know. Wanting to increase the reach of your ministry or your church's ability to make disciples? Come to my website for free resources and webinars built exclusively for Christian nonprofits and churches. CreativeDigitalGuide.com helps executive directors and pastors learn how to gain ministry partners to do God-sized missions.